1: Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday time for our Zoomer squad. And today it's all about remembering some newly departed Zoomer greats. Just over an hour ago, we learned that NHL great Bobby Hull has died at the age of 84. And as we speak, the funeral for former Lieutenant Governor David Onley is underway. And yesterday, former Mississauga mayor, Hazel McCallion, a legend and an icon, passed away at the age of 101. And I would like to encourage our audience to call in today and to share their own reminiscences of these wonderful people. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 740
0: And now, time for the Zoomer Squad.
1: And now I'd like to welcome Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at at CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Uh, Peter, I am going to begin with you because, of course, uh, among so many other things, Hazel McCallion was uh, a cover girl on yeah. Zoomer magazine, yeah. and I have to say she looked fabulous. But she was, you know, wearing all this high fashion that she would never wear in real life. Oh, no,
2: and she said that too. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? She played it up. She, she, uh, you know, she vamped for the camera, and she, she was a great, uh, you know, her enthusiasm. At, at one point, the photographer, um, this is this was for an article several years ago. So she would have been well into her nineties, like, eh. so the the photographer wanted to get like the hurricane hazel effect. So he, he got her to put on a leather jacket and a pilot's cap. Yeah. And then he got her to stand on this little bench, you know, a foot off the ground, um, and turned on a big fan to get, to get a, (laughs) yeah, I remember that shot. And, um, and her, her sort of, her EA was saying, no, 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 don't, don't do it. Don't do it. You know, um. You you're know, she's going to fall down. And she said, no, no, I'm going to do it. And she stood there for, for a minute while this heavy wind was blowing on her and just completely fearless, you know.
1: Well, well she was extremely athletic. Yeah. And even on a, a personal thing, I mean, she was an icon of how to age. She lived at home until the end. I mean, I remember having conversations with, uh, with her within the last year. And I said, Hazel, are, are you still cleaning your own house? She was.
2: It, with, yeah. Yeah. She, she brought her own firewood up from the back and did her own taxes. And she, you know, was,
3: <laughs> I, I think what's amazing with her is um, not just the long life, but how active she was and how accomplished she was. At ages that are typically seen as a time to slow down. I mean, she doesn't get elected mayor of Mississauga in the first place till so she's like 57 or 58. Mm-hmm. She serves until well into her 80s. She's a chancellor of Sheridan College in her, I think, late no,
1: no, 80s. no. She served until she in her nineties. She was 90s ninety-three when she, quote, retired. Well, she did yeah. retire okay. as mayor.
3: And then she's chancellor of Sheridan College in her nineties. <laughs> she's an advisor to Doug Ford in her nineties. So she's Rivera.
2: She worked at Rivera. Rivera. As well. yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, she's an executive at Rivera in yeah. her late nineties. Yeah. So she's doing stuff it's not that she's living longer which is thank heavens and she is for her well, but she's yeah. doing stuff that is serious accomplishments not to mention playing hockey until her at least her eighties. well into her yeah eight, well into yeah. her 80s yeah. so where do you find this that's why
1: <laughs> she's an original and and uh, uh unbelievable well you know there's this whole issue of purpose and and she wrote a book, and it was um think think like think like a mayor, act like a lady, work like a dog right,
2: <laughs> <laughs> and you know what, and she demanded that everyone else around her do the same thing, and you know she kept up a legendary schedule on uh <laughs> of appointments and and dinners and speeches and charitable events and she, was, but you, she was but you everywhere said the word at all purpose. Times. That's
3: right. Everywhere. And she she, yeah. she was quoted she boiled it all down to that central thing always have a purpose. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, and we know this, uh, I've done uh, you know quite a number of stories on the importance of having a purpose and it's it's not even necessarily that important what the purpose is, but it, it seems to be the key to keeping us uh, alive and healthy mm-hmm. and engaged. And yeah. engaged. Yeah. Well,
3: the purpose is the engagement, the right. stuff yeah. I want to do, which in turn means I perceive I have time to get it done, which in turn means I better figure out what to do and how to do it, which is what keeps that activity mm-hmm. going. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, she was a trailblazer in terms of her career. As well, though a lot of it seems—I mean, I don't think she had a, a, a master plan. I'm going to become mayor of Mississauga, but it—it it, it was just kind of incremental. And of course, one of the things was she was a trailblazer in terms of women in politics.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, she—she—her first opponent, I think his name was um, Ron Searle. Ron Searle. Yeah, yeah, had had sort of made made some comment about you know he didn't want to debate a woman because he didn't basically he didn't want her to like to be an embarrassment for her and it turned out of course the other way around <laughs> <laughs> and she went from there uh she didn't call herself a feminist but she, no. she certainly she certainly didn't uh never back down and never let anything stand in her way
1: well no and she believed that the public sphere was better off when women were leaders she did,
3: and she was. Uh, she and for all her feistiness, she was able to build a lot of uh, quite a diverse range of alliances across party she lines, was, yeah. across you know points of view. Yeah, so she wasn't sort of monochromatic. You know, she could yeah. move and adjust and and deal with yeah. complex
1: situations. Well, she wasn't partisan, and she right. always sort of said what she meant. And now that we are in the age of of talking points from politicians like automatic talking points is like so refreshing but she wasn't partisan she would deal with whoever she had to deal with
2: yeah but whether it was Ford or Trudeau she yeah. she she worked both sides really she did an ad that famous um we're not scared ad that uh about seniors voting for Trudeau and then and then she worked for the Ford government so she she could easily, you know, of all stripes, she 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 played all sides of the. Uh,
1: That's right. Yeah. I mean, she was a, a liberal, but uh, you know, didn't necessarily agree no. with everything. Um, I I was listening to a tribute from the former premier Kathleen Wynne also a liberal and um you know there were there were some big disagreements she had with Hazel and of course you know this morning Bonnie Crombie was talking to James Jane Sam and I on the morning Zoom and she was talking about Hazel's support of her career, but also how being called to her office was a little bit like being called to the principal's <laughs> office. Exactly.
2: Exactly. No one wanted that, right? Yeah.
1: No, no one wanted that. Uh, well, no, actually some people did, but, <laughs> but you had to, I guess, you know, yeah. gird your loins or, or whatever, you know, the the other thing that people talk about today but you know do not follow through on in at least in terms of politics is this authenticity right and she was completely authentic mm-hmm. and i mean i just you know the, we're hearing all these tributes but and and we're hearing from politicians who have Gone to her and asked her for advice, but I'm I'm kind of wonder if it sinks in this whole question of authenticity and saying what you mean and not gobbledygook and not government speak.
2: Yeah, and and back it up too, right? Like not not just being for for a public show. Like it, it was, it seemed to permeate every part of her life. She she never she never was called out as a hypocrite or anything. She was just purely. Authentic, but
3: the, but to me, looking back on her and, and indeed some of her contemporaries, that there was the consulting class, if I could call it that, or the image making it was not as they were there, but they didn't seem to be as powerful as they are today. Where today authenticity is just another attribute that they're trying to manufacture
1: right exactly so wasn't what what's your right? suit of yeah.
3: clothes look like what color tie do you have what what do you do with your hair and what is how can we brand your authenticity so you're you're it's kind of synthetic authenticity
1: well it is I, there's a a famous quote from uh, uh a long ago TV reporter and he said uh the key is authenticity and once you learn how to fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> That's right.
3: That's right. Exactly.
1: But uh but um what do you think her legacy will be in this in we're in such a different age now, especially mm-hmm. with social media and all that.
2: Um I, I think her legacy will be um, you know, she she ran that city uh without raising taxes and without a debt. And she did it for you know 24 years or whatever so like that that revolutionized the way municipal politics was done and and I think that will be her legacy like making developers pay their way keeping taxes low and um you know delivering services for people she I mean it, it was an un unchallengeable formula she won every election and I, and I think that will be her legacy
1: well um, because of the changes in, in what developers are being charged, you know, the, the, the current mayor and others have warned that the tax increases are going to be quite large. And also speaking of that, and speaking of how, uh, she wasn't partisan and, and had positions that her compadres may not agree with. I mean, she's in favor of the development oh, of yeah, the green belt. Yeah. yeah. She yeah.
3: called it a brave decision.
1: Yeah. By Ford. By Ford. Yeah,
3: but I think that legacy to me is after we have dealt with all the local issues, like who's going to remember when Mississauga was streetsville and why this village got amalgamated with that village. And sure. she was on the planning council. Mm-hmm. There's just so much inside baseball that'll be forgotten. To me, the Uber legacy will be accomplishment and achievement. And back to her word, purpose. Look what you can do with your life if you're willing to take all these things on, and whether it's bringing women's hockey into Canada more forcefully, whether it's the Sheridan College chancellorship, whether it's advising premiers in your 90s, it's a refusal to say, I can't do this. It's time for me to get off the stage. And I think that's a very strong theme for that can inspire younger people of all persuasions, of all groups.
1: Well, and and... I think she herself was surprised that she continued to receive so much attention. You know, she wasn't going to stop doing what she was doing, but I think she thought that, that she would become kind of, I guess, less relevant. Or Yeah.
2: I, I asked her about that and she, she was worried about uh, becoming sort of a token or, or sort of like, uh, you know, roll, roll Hazel out here. And, you know, <laughs> you know, she was very worried about that. And And then she, she said, she realized that, um, you know, these politicians wanted her for her savvy and her experience and her, you know, her her um, you know her strategies and and they want and Rivera wanted her, you know, not not to be just the face. They, they wanted her for her, you know, vice on the boardroom ideas, table. Yeah. You know, so she 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 quickly realized that you know, um, just because she was no longer mayor, she still had a, you know. She still had qualities that people wanted and always wanted right up until she died. You
1: know? yeah, and, yeah. And I have to say, you know, I covered her in various ways over many, many years. And the thing about it was, you know, there are a lot of people who really hate their politicians, not a lot of people who, not a lot of politicians who are beloved. And she was beloved. She was. Because I think
3: people sensed that she was an original, that she mm-hmm. was yeah. the real deal. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't agree with her on that topic, and I loved her on that. But as a person, she was honest, and she was, as you said before, authentic. And that's what people can form an attachment to long after the policy debates and the ins and outs are, are forgotten. That's what lives on.
1: I'm going to take a call from
4: Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. Hi, Libby. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much. I will not only remember ex-Mayor Hazel as a trailblazer politician, but a down to work person she was. We were lucky to run into her 30 years ago in the grocery store at Price Chopper. I automatically gave her a hug and couldn't resist giving her a a cheek pinch. She stopped and we chatted for a while. Another time, my husband ran into her sitting alone in a restaurant, and he jokingly said to her, are you drinking at the job? And she laughed and said, she's waiting for her niece. And my son, when he graduated Sheridan College, of course, Mayor McCullion was on the board, and by fate, Work at a bank where she frequently visits and she chats with employees all the time. He was awe at 95 plus, she was still doing her own things. May <laughs> yeah. rest in peace.
1: And, and uh, thank you, Sita, for those reminiscences. And, and there you go. Uh, you know, how many encounters of 30 years ago would you remember, right? So she is. One of those people where, if you ran into her, you remembered. And yeah. she apparently had she had time for everybody, and she would go to all these things like she never, it never caught to her head. No.
2: Yeah, and no. she came from humble humble yeah. beginnings. Right, she a farm in Gaspe Peninsula. You know, yeah. And, yeah, Codac, and yeah. Uh, you know, just learned hard work and was sort of. She used to talk about the Protestant work ethic. You know, like she was sort of standard bearer of that—I I don't even know if it exists anymore—but she, she sort of was, you know, that in spades.
1: Yep, yep.
2: Uh, she, she was. And if I could
5: uh, add, you know, I uh, worked with uh, with her uh, a little over thirty years ago when I was with the YMCA. We were building what was then the new Mississauga uh, YMCA, and uh, I was the staff person who was assigned to work with. Uh, her in terms of the development uh, and the fundraising for that uh, uh, for that facility and i say work with her because i really i found out how direct she was i worked for hazel uh during those days and uh, but she was amazing i was at that point uh, a senior fundraiser with the ymca understood the ins and outs of raising the dollars and she caught on extremely quickly in terms of the nuances of both what we were doing and her vision of what that facility should do for for the community and it ended up being one of the finest YMCAs in Canada in its day uh, uh, that uh, particular uh, building and she had a, a strong hand in it and ended up being much more than just an advisor but through it all she was lovely to work with she you never felt that she was ordering you around or that she was uh, uh, somehow just using her position to get her own way she really did work uh, cooperatively but firmly with those people who were uh, asked to work with her
1: Hmm. um Moving along, I guess, Uh, Bobby Hull just passed away, a hockey great. Hazel, of course, uh, played professional hockey for a while, but uh, Bobby Hull.
3: Well, inventor of the slap shot shot, and the curved hockey stick, Uh, a troubled troubled guy in some ways, a brilliant talent as a hockey player, and... uh, uh, one of those larger-than-life people who you probably don't want to know all the, <laughs> the details <laughs> no. of, the, of the life, but a great, great uh, star. And uh, he, he he really took the game to where it foreshadowed what it is today.
2: Yeah, big, powerful skater. Power forwards yeah. and uh, um, lethal shots. He had, um, you know, that blonde hair and, you know, <laughs> um he came from an age when i guess athletes were you, you know they covered up all the warts you know and uh and they could just be sort of icons for for fans and and uh you know he played in the 50s and 60s and and that was the the sort of the golden age of sports and then uh you know in the 70s it all started coming out and it it wasn't so pleasant but uh, still like just tremendous uh, icon for for um you know Great hockey player.
3: I do have yeah. one memory. Oh, go I ahead. Share with, dating myself though, here as a little boy. Let me. I'm so little. Uh, you could go to a game at Maple Leaf Gardens and uh, watch the Leafs. And when the teams came out at the beginning of the game and they did their warm ups, they taking shots on their yeah. own goalies. A 15 minute warm. Walk- the kids could stand by the boards. With their programs and a pen. And the players would from time to time skate over and give an autograph. And I got an autograph. Today they're all at autograph shows yeah. and they want to get yeah. paid to give you those autographs. Yeah. But back then they would come over and chat with the kids. And he was very good about that. Yeah. I remember getting an autograph from him and another time from Gordie Howe. And you could, you could. They were more accessible to the fans Absolutely. somehow. Back Absolutely, back yeah. And did you keep the
1: autograph? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: God. I, I wish I had it. It might be worth something. Yeah. You. Well, exactly.
1: But, uh, but today you know, he they'd... would be
3: at an autograph show, and you'd pay, you know, uh, be like an
1: assembly line.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I, I'm going to take a call from John in Mississauga, who is remembering Bobby Hall. Hello, John.
6: Yes, good morning. Um, I was just saying that uh, I saw, uh, I mean, I can always remember this interview uh, with the old Ward Cornell there at the end of the first period or, or second, um, when I was yeah. about ten years old or less in the mid sixties and it always stuck with me that when he was answering the questions, a lot of times he would say, "Now you kids out there or again he 'd look right at the camera and say "You know good things about about uh, how how to play the game and it wasn 't necessarily you know a question about well, how do you feel after that first period you know I mean which is a dumb question in my mind so anyway that 's uh, that's what I remember uh, he seemed pretty genuine.
1: Okay, Th- thank you for that, John. You know, we're we're talking about genuine and of course the funeral for David only is underway right now and he of course was uh, a a former colleague mm-hmm. of mine and he also a trailblazer and a very genuinely nice guy.
3: Yeah. It's for sure a trailblazer. I mean, what he took on and how he took it on and with the grace that he took it on was like, fantastic. And was he
2: have. the, was he the, he was the first, uh,
1: Lieutenant, you know, the first Lieutenant TV God.
2: personality with a visible disability, was he or?
1: I, um, I can't uh, yeah, anyway, confirm.
2: He was, he was one of the only ones I remember growing yeah. up, like not growing up, but, but. Like seeing him in a scooter. And, You're
1: dating you know. us, Peter. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, but I, I can't think of anyone else. Like he, he, he certainly. Um, sorry, he certainly. Um, you know, it,
1: it, he he brought a lot of attention to it.
2: Is he did, and he and he didn't use it as a crutch, so to speak. He,
1: he <laughs> nice pun, <laughs> but he but he
3: did it in a very uh, graceful, absolutely, uh, absolutely classy yeah.
1: way. Not a not a. Well, harshly, exactly, you know, he yeah. did it in a- you know, I have to say all of, all of this talk, as we remember, uh, you know, these these great people, it's just underlining to me that basically we're in a different area. Now, a lot of things have changed. And with it, you know, the people.
3: I think the people have changed and the environment has changed. And um, thinking back to the caller or a couple of calls ago about Bobby Hull. Yeah. So today Bobby Hull would have a Twitter account and he would be
2: yeah. telling you more than you ever
3: wanted <laughs> to know about
2: whatever it was. Yeah.
3: And and in people would days, be
2: taking shots of him at parties. And in and stuff those like days, that. they yeah. weren't
3: making the, the mega bucks. I remember it, when he played, he would go to work on his farm in the off season. Yeah. He
2: had a working farm out in
3: Saskatchewan. No, no, uh, uh, wasn't it
2: Belleville? I think. Yeah. Oh, well, I thought he was. Yeah.
3: Anyway, yeah. he had a farm, and a lot of the hockey players had jobs off the ice in the off season, so they had to kind of relate to their fans because that was what was selling tickets. Mm-hmm. Today, they take a big contract and. They're insulated, or yeah. they're more insulated.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, they're insulated, but but also, um, I would say, more entitled, too.
3: Well, they certainly <laughs> certainly have more means. They're controlling yeah. a lot more than... Uh, he, he came up in the system, Bobby Hull, before there was even a Players Association that was yeah. kind of contemporary with yeah. him, Ted Lindsay, I think. But So they, they were really... Um, at the whim of the owners, and there weren't that many teams. And um, maybe that was why they were so erratic yeah. off the ice because their position was so perilous.
2: Well, and he, he signed the first million dollar contract, yeah. but it wasn't a million dollars a year. It was like 10 years at, at 100,000 100, or something. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, but uh, the big money, certainly they played before the big money.
1: Bill?
5: Know. The uh, you know the uh, young hockey players, the kids when they're uh, playing in the in the lower leagues and getting finally to have a sweater and pick a number, they're still. It's very common for number nine to Absolutely. be the one that is yeah. chosen. His reputation has uh, lived on even among the uh, those uh, people much younger than the three of us.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, to wrap things up, I mean it. It, it is kind of a sad day. Uh but um you know I hate to say the usual question what would you like to leave us with but what would you like to leave us with Peter and and uh by the way uh folks go to everythingzoomer.com uh Peter has written up something really great about Hazel thanks Libby um
2: well just just three very different personalities but they they all impacted us in a, in a very Deep way, like on different levels. If you're a sports fan, if you were, um, you know, lived in Mississauga, or if you watch City in the in the '80s, so like three three people who left their mark and uh, will be remembered.
3: I'm, I'm hanging on to the phrase that was used in all three uh, cases with, uh, and that is celebration of life, a celebration of the life of this individual. So there's, it's sad. But there's almost a kind of a warm glow mixed yeah. in with that yeah, reminiscence what mean, yeah. of what was accomplished and recognition of what was accomplished mm-hmm, absolutely. and an example for the future. So I think it's as much an inspiration uh, as a grievance. Uh,
1: Bill, last 20 seconds to you.
5: Yeah, agreed. Mrs. McCallion was a, a great supporter of the Y. She helped us launch Mississauga Y. She was a lifetime member of the—sorry, of uh, sorry, this is a, a chapter of CARP. She was a lifetime member of— uh, carp and zoomer and really personified what uh, moses uh Zeimer always talks about and that is the best way to keep going is to keep going
1: okay on that note we wrap things up thank you so much bill van gorder peter mugridge and david cravat we're going to take a break and when we come back we'll talk about the latest guidance on where the pandemic is at
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Today we heard from the WHO on the state of the pandemic. Their take? COVID-19 remains a global health emergency, but according to the Director General, Tedros Ghebreyesus, we are in a much better place than a year ago, and we actually may be reaching what he calls an inflection point. On the negative side, in the last eight weeks, as many as 170,000 people have died globally of COVID-19. So what does that mean here for us at home. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 4740 And I am now joined by Dr. Christopher Labos, cardiologist and epidemiologist based in Montreal, and Dr. Prabhat Jha, an epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalla Lana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Thank you both for joining us. You uh, let's begin with Dr. Labos. So, what does this mean for us well in 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 some respects, nothing has changed.
7: I think what the World Health Organization has signaled is what I think most of us would probably agree with. You know the situation here in Canada is you know uh, arguably better than it was three years ago and certainly better than it was one year ago. But the role of the WHO is not to comment on the situation in Canada. The role of the WHO is to coordinate the international health response when you have a global problem. And I think it would have been really hard for somebody to look at the data and say, hmm, 170,000 people have died in the past two months, everything's fine. So there is still a role for the WHO to play. And this is what they do. This is the mechanism they use to signify that a global international response is needed to combat this particular disease. They declare a public health emergency of international concern, and that allows them to coordinate and to mobilize certain resources. And this is what they're talking about, because yes, we are in a, you know, slightly better place than we were before, but there's still a lot of work that has to be done. We have to coordinate a vaccine rollout. There's still a lot of places where vaccines have not been administered to, you know, a very high level. And there's going to have to be an ongoing process to sequence and test for COVID so that we can identify new variants and then update the vaccines to reflect those new variants. So there's still a lot of work that has to be done. And I think the point to remember is that you know, when they use the term public health emergency, that doesn't mean you have to be running around with your hair on fire, but it does mean that you need to do something about it, and that's what the WHO is, is for. Uh,
1: Dr. Jha, is this going to impact uh, anything about what we are doing here, or uh, is just stay the course? It should impact
6: what we do globally, as my colleague has said, that uh, in Canada, we've got reasonably good levels of what is WHO is also labeled as hybrid immunity. That's a combination of vaccination and infection. So, our national antibody study, the ABC study, has shown that over seventy percent of adult Canadians have been infected, um, mostly with the Omicron variant, and uh, we know over ninety percent have had at least two doses of the vaccine. So that puts Canada, on the whole, in reasonably good places. We're better in that way than, for example, the U.S. But the concern is there are large parts of the world that are unvaccinated or under vaccinated. And as we've seen in China, still undergoing um, a new wave of Omicron infections in, in China. And hopefully, It might just be one wave, but there's no certainty of that. They might have subsequent waves. And then there's, if you look at places like uh, Africa, uh, they have had widespread infection, but very low vaccination. So there, think of them as a hybrid immunity wall where you want a combination of vaccination and infection. Just relying on infection alone in Africa might be the recipe for new variants to arise in which would put us back uh, potentially back in Canada, if a variant came out that uh, uh, our current vaccines don't work as well against, so for all those region uh, reasons, we have to be diligent. Uh, you know, the world's one crowded apartment building, and you can't think of well. A few places have smoke detectors and and uh, fire alarms and sprinklers, and the rest don't. I mean, the whole the whole building is at risk here, which is what WHO has identified.
1: Well. Um we're doing a lot less testing than we have before a lot of uh, a lot of stakeholders are are not really happy about that uh you, you know is that going to impact our ability to to figure out the new variants dr labos
7: It it could. Now, here's the thing. You don't have to test every single person to get a snapshot of what's going on in your country or globally, but you do have to test people. And what's more important is you also have to sequence the variants, so you have to genetically analyze them to look at the mutations, And you have to make that data available. You have to make that data open to everybody. And one of the issues that the WHO has sort of highlighted uh, was what was happening in China when they started to have their current outbreak, is that they were not really sharing their sequencing data. So if you're going to worry about a new variant emerging, which I think is a very justifiable worry, you need to make it so that countries can share their sequencing data and then not be penalized for it. I think one of the reasons why, or one of the barriers to international cooperation that WHO has always talked about, is you can't then penalize people for identifying the new variant. I mean, think back to a year ago when South Africa had identified the Omicron variant, and they got slapped with, not sanctions, but travel restrictions. And there was a bit of an economic um downside to what they did. And so if you make it so that there's no incentive to cooperate, people are gonna start stop cooperating. And that's, I think, the real key going forward. Because if there's no new variant, we'll probably be okay. But if there is a new variant that is significantly different from what came before, in the same way that Omicron was significantly different from Delta, well, then you could have new ways and new problems. And that's really going to be the issue going forward, is that can we set up an early surveillance network to identify a problem when it happens, that we can ramp things up and be you know, not be caught by surprise should a new variant emerge?
1: Dr. Jha, um, so, uh, you know, in terms of, our own experience, we were all uh, really worried about, you know, the triple threat, uh, uh, a surge at the beginning of the season, plus the flu, plus RSV. And we experienced that, but but the worst of that seems to be over. It, it, do you concur with that analysis?
6: That's probably true. The hospital case counts are suggesting that uh, that triple burden has uh, certainly started to ease. The wastewater testing has shown that, at least in Ontario, the the uh, uh, levels have peaked. Um, but I, I think it's important to note that there are still huge burdens on our healthcare system. And I think the big lesson, the big takeaway lesson, which was not in the WHO report, uh, is the need for a global adult vaccination program. What really has saved all of our derriers, if you'll excuse me, is the vaccine and the fact that 13 billion doses have been administered worldwide unequally, but they have been distributed. If we have a future bug that causes as much um, pandemonium as, uh, as coronavirus did, the main response would be vaccination, quickly identifying a vaccine and quickly rolling it out. Now, had coronavirus been only a disease of children, in fact, we have a worldwide immunization program, the extended program on immunization, that would actually have been able to curtail the, the infection much, much more rapidly, but there is no adult immunization program. Uh, and I believe that's actually a far better bet of resources to build a vaccination program then what's being proposed to spend potentially billions on early detection, quite frankly, early detection. If let's say we discovered the virus uh, was circulating in Wuhan, not on January 4th, 2020, but a month earlier, would that have changed the trajectory of the pandemic? Probably not uh, because it was already widespread. And that's the same logic behind uh, not having the restrictions that Canada and the U.S. placed on travel testing from China. That was just, I think, politically a bad move and scientifically not justified. So we have to focus on what works, and what works would be an adult vaccination program. And I was I was somewhat disappointed that WHO did not flag that as the best way forward.
1: Um. Dr. Labos, uh, I'm going to ask a kind of political question. And my take is that even if we get some kind of worst case scenario and there's a, a new variant and our vaccinations don't work that well against it, I think that at this point, there is absolutely no appetite for strong measures like lockdowns. And, you know, how big a threat is that if it is a threat?
7: Yeah, so I I suspect that you are probably correct. I think the public has been, is, is much less tolerant of these sorts of things than they were in the past because they're much less afraid for their own personal safety. I think most people know that they probably are not going to die if they get infected with COVID and that is true. But there are outcomes beyond death that matter. And I think that's the subtle argument that is sometimes difficult to make because we're doing this not just to prevent death. We're doing this to prevent the complications of COVID. We're doing this to prevent long COVID. We're doing this to prevent the burden that is put on the healthcare system. And this applies for not just COVID, but also influenza, but also for RSV, for a lot of the diseases that are circulating that put a lot of strain on the healthcare system that are preventable with vaccination and very basic public health measures. Now, will we have to have a generalized lockdown again? Probably not. Again, we don't know, um, you know, COVID has been predictably unpredictable, but probably not. But I think the point is is that we have to focus on the things that are very, very effective and combat, combat a lot of the misinformation that is out there. And there is a lot of it. And it is yeah. pernicious and very destructive to our public health response. So we need to have a vaccination program for not just COVID, but, you know, it, 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 it's true that, you know, RSV and influenza, the, the triple is seems to be on the way out, which is a good thing but they're going to come back. Those diseases have not gone away. So going forward for our next cold and flu season next year, there probably will be more cases of B. There probably will be more cases of influenza. So we're going to have to be better at the influenza vaccination program, which we don't do that great a job at. We don't have an RSV vaccine yet, but possibly we might have one by next year. So we're going to have to be better at rolling out our vaccinations in this country because we do, you know, we did sort of okay at the beginning of COVID. We haven't done that well in getting people to follow up with their booster shots, especially the bivalent booster. So we need to put more resources into that because that is what helps. And that is what's going to help diminish the strain we put on the healthcare system, because if we have a repeat of what happened this year, next year, that's going to be really hard for the hospital system to uh, to manage.
1: Dr. Jha, last 20 seconds to you.
6: I agree with Dr. Labos. I would have liked to see uh, Prime Minister Trudeau say to all the provinces, you want more money for healthcare, build a national vaccination program that vaccinates every adult against these routine conditions including flu but you know even things like making sure our tetanus and other things are all up to date and which is ready to add new vaccines as they come along that would have been a very efficient use of uh, of the the political uh, capital that uh, but uh, I hope they still can make that case that we need to build a national program and Canada could lead by example
1: okay thank you both dr christopher labos and dr prabhat jha thanks so much
7: Thank you. Take
1: care. Bye-bye. We are going to take another break. And when we come back, it seems like everywhere the chat is about chat. GPT will have an explainer. What is it? How should we use it? Uh, all important to know when we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. If you have recently engaged with everything from online shopping to online finance and even your health records, chances are you have interacted with artificial intelligence and suddenly talk of chat. GPT is everywhere with both praise for the advantages and caution for unintended consequences like enabling cheating on exams. So what exactly is ChatGPT and how should we use it? Let's bring in Carmi Levy, a technology analyst and journalist based in London, Ontario. Hey, Carmi, how are you? Hello, Levy. I'm great. Wonderful to be here. Well, thank you. Uh, So what is ChatGPT and why is it suddenly everywhere?
8: So it is known as a a chatbot or an AI chatbot, artificial intelligence. You can find it online at chat.openai.com. It comes to us from an organization known as OpenAI. It's an open source platform, and they kind of want the world to see it. Basically, what it is, the best way to think about it is that it's kind of like the next generation of search, although, so instead of with Google, where we just punch in a bunch of search terms. And then it gives us a list of links, and then we click on those links and follow them home. A chatbot like ChatGPT is far more interactive and conversational. You ask it a question, and then it actually goes and it does it. So, write me a write me a a, a paper for my year end class. Um, on you know the history of canada starting in you know 1892 um and it'll it'll do that it'll for reach through its database which of course it is used to, is based on what it is scoured from public service services and uh, sources on the internet and we use artificial intelligence to come up with something will it be great probably not but will it be good enough um you know uh, in a recent test uh, a professor actually had it a pass an exam for an MBA course. And he rated it a B to a B minus. So it's not quite there yet. But in many cases, shockingly close to what a human would crank out and all based on a machine. And it's causing, as you can imagine, lots of consternation because it can write papers, it can write ads, it can do things that humans used to do. Um, it can and are even still write doing malware. to
1: some extent.
8: Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's interesting because we had similar arguments about this, you know, decades ago when robots started invading uh, factories. And it's like, oh, goodness, is is, is it going to render factory workers obsolete? Well, to a certain extent, it did. Um, and robotics and automation really has been a number on the so-called blue-collar sort of side of things. You can't walk into a factory today without seeing robots all over the place. But what ChatGPT and other technolo- technologies like, they did, like this is, do is they move it from the blue collar space to the white collar space. Now suddenly writers, academics, uh, you know, anyone else who uses their brain as opposed to their body, well now they're at risk from this technology too.
1: Well, it's interesting because my understanding is that it can very quickly uh, learn to mimic your style or mimic your voice, which would be crucial in anything that involves uh, writing or whatever. And, and, you know, currently there are a lot of chatbots out there, but, you know, sometimes they come out mangled and they don't necessarily, like if you... I mean, I have say on issues of customer service or something. Type something, and it's a chatbot, and they they don't really get, uh, you know, what I said. It's pretty clear from mm-hmm. the automated response.
8: Exactly, and and I think anyone who's ever used a chatbot on a retail website, for example, kind of knows. Yeah, they're really limited, and at some point, they're going to have to kick it over to a human because only a human can handle the more complex scenarios that you know we often encounter say when we want to return something or you know it's out of bounds. But the interesting thing about this technology is is that it you know it's artificial intelligence. So we know that over time it will get better. Over time it will be better trained. It will have access to more data. It'll consume more data. Um and it will it will uh, it will become a little bit more lifelike, a little bit less robotic. Um and in fact, even chat GPT, it's based on a technology what's known as a language model um that is known as GPT three, uh three point five actually. And in fact later this year they're gonna upgrade it to then the next language model, GPT four. So the very guts of ChatGPT CPT are about to get a more human-like uh, enhancement or upgrade. And as we, as we kind of have this conversation over the next few years, that's exactly what's going to happen. It's going to move from, oh, I can tell that it's artificial intelligence to, is that really human or not? We're not going to be able to tell the difference. And that's where things get a little bit frightening. We start getting closer to ethical and moral, moral lines, and we probably have to start having discussions about how do we use these technologies about allowing them to literally take things over.
1: Hmm. Uh, I mean, there, there, there are all kinds of very, uh, sci-fi-ish conversations, but I'd like to get back to what you were talking about before. So, is this, uh, going to replace people's jobs?
8: Well, it's interesting. I'm, my wife is a teacher, and this is obviously a conversation that uh, has invaded their staff room. They're all talking about it. Well, why do you need teachers if if everything can just be done by a chatbot? Um, and I think what this does, and certainly uh, New York City's public schools, Seattle schools, uh, they've actually outright banned the use of ChatGPT on school equipment and on school networks. They don't want them being used. They say it's a threat to sort of the, the sanctity of the academic process. Whereas as you move into higher education so colleges and universities they can't really ban them because you act know, over issues of academic freedom if a student wants to use it as a tool how do they say no so what they're doing is they're looking at ways of changing the way they teach so instead of memorizing things and then spitting them back or you know having exams at the end of the semester you know kind of rote back and forth you're little removed from the way people were taught decades or even centuries ago Maybe you incorporate the chatbot into the class. Maybe you have the students go out and use the chatbot as a tool, much like they would have used a calculator in decades past or a laptop or a smartphone. And then why do when you have them discuss or critique what the chatbot shares in response? And so instead of being afraid of the new technology, you incorporate it into the process. You use it as a way to update the process, make it more relevant for the digital age that we live in. When I was a kid, they argued about laptops in classrooms. And for a while, they were banned. Well, now we realize that's kind of silly. At some point, you have to say, you know, we can't ban this stuff. We have to change along with it or we're going to get left behind.
1: Huh. Very interesting. Uh, What about in terms of the health space? Because, you know, we're being told and we realize that one of the things that's going to alleviate the crunch is... Uh, virtual uh, robots in some cases, those little robots that they use in Japan uh, and artificial intelligence. And even right now uh, you can get your health information often, you know, before uh, your doctor sees it uh, and it, there's artificial intelligence involved. So is this a good thing, a bad thing, or a bit of both? Well,
8: I think, I think like every technology there, there's, I call it the duality of technology. If we choose to use it for good, then it's a very good thing. But can it be used against us by, you know, criminals? Of course it can. But, you know, in the context of healthcare, I think the potential for this to revolutionize the delivery of healthcare is uh, almost too good to pass up. If you look at our system now, it's overwhelmed because We don't have the resources to handle the demand that we're facing. What if we could use artificial intelligence to triage patients at the ER? What if we could triage patients long before they even get to the ER and provide medical care in ways that absolutely extend beyond? the physical infrastructure of a hospital where you could, you know, create revolutionary new ways to deliver health care to the community without necessarily increasing the cost. I think all of us would be open to that. And certainly in the hands of the right medical professionals, artificial intelligence could be one of those force multipliers. It could allow, you know, the the, the same number of people that we have deployed now to cover far greater, uh, you know, much larger communities. Deliver much more precise healthcare uh, with better outcomes uh, and also with, you know, in an increasingly cost effective way. The potential is certainly there. Uh, and I think tools like ChatGPT force us, especially as they kind of move into the mainstream, they're forcing us to have these discussions that we probably should have had a few years ago, but, you know, better late than never.
1: And uh, finally, uh, what would you say to uh, people who are listening? Zoomers like what do we have to know about this stuff uh, in order you know just to keep up with things
8: well i mean i think that you know awareness is the first thing that we need we don't have to be experts in artificial intelligence but we do have to be aware of how it is being applied in our day-to-day life so you know for example when we search online or when we're using these tools we we sort of have to be critical is this artificial intelligence is this chatbot a human being at what point does the technology sort of give way, and a human start, Like, where's that interface point? Just you know, let's open our eyes, use the technology with uh, an open, you know, an open heart, open mind, um, and don't simply think that oh, it doesn't apply to me. Truth of the matter is, it applies to all of us. And just like earlier waves of technology, when smartphones became a thing, when the commercial internet became a thing, when calculators became a thing, um, the last thing that we want to do is pretend it doesn't exist or try to ban it. We really need to embrace it. As scary as change may be, um, the last thing anybody wants to do is be that person who gets left behind because everyone else tried it and we didn't and now we're not part of the conversation to ask the questions, get the answers. And if you're not sure, keep asking until you're satisfied with what you hear back.
1: Well, interesting. Yesterday, I had a customer service issue with some online shopping, dare mm-hmm. I say, for change. And the first response I got, they said, this is an automated response. And then there mm-hmm. was another response that was had a signature of somebody's first name. And I really did not believe that there was an actual person on the end of their, you know, coming from California on a Sunday afternoon?
8: I think it's reasonable that, especially <laughs> as this technology is being deployed, that the companies and organizations and governments and hospitals and all that that do it make it clear, this is this is automation, this is a human being. And I think that's something, as we start using them in the, in the course of our day-to-day life, we're probably going to have to be a little bit more upfront about it as well. Um, you know, and w- we're going to relearn how we move through the digital world and the real world, thanks to these new technologies A little bit of communication certainly can't hurt along the way.
1: Okay, thank you so much, Carmi Levy. Bye-bye. Great being here, Levy. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening
0: to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.